0: to the Wings Over New Zealand Show, with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand Show, Great Escapes 3. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. This is the third episode where we look at Royal New Zealand Air Force ejections from jets. And in this episode, my guest is Phil Barnes. Barnesy. Well, I want to welcome Philip Barnes to the show. Hi, Phil. Hi, Dave. How are you? Yeah, good, good. Yeah, can you uh, give me a little bit of background uh, where you sort of grew up and, and how you got into the Air Force and uh, just a, a brief overview.
1: Uh, yeah, I grew up in Rotorua. Um, I went through the Air Training Corps and I would always had an interest in aviation. I was lucky enough to get an Air Force flying scholarship while I was still at school and went solo on uh, air trainers down at Wigrim then. And then following leaving school, I joined the Air Force at the start of 95 and obviously went through my training uh, and ended up in the uh, air attack force.
0: Right. Okay. Okay. So um, when you had your ejection incident, uh, you were with two squadron, weren't you?
1: I was actually uh, posted at 75 Squadron. It was in the final year of the Skyhawk Ops. So we were short of crew and sort of almost from an aircrew point of view considered to be one unit. And so in that case, yeah, I was operating with two squadron over in Perth, but I was uh, actually a 75 Squadron pilot.
0: Okay, okay. Uh, So what was the sort of uh, the situation? What were you doing over in Perth? Um, for those who don't know and what was the sort of lead up?
1: Yeah, the two squadron obviously uh, normally being based over in Nowra had a percentage of its hours uh, partially paid for by the Australian government and uh, to support mainly the Royal Australian Navy and their fleet concentration periods and their workups. So in that case, uh, one of the Western fleet uh, boats, I can't remember which one I would have been doing some sort of work up. And so, two squadron had been deployed over uh, to Pierce, being the Air Force base there, but to work over in the West Australian exercise areas. Uh, they had already flown the aircraft over there, and I had caught a Qantas flight over from uh, New Zealand to, to join them. Um, and yeah, it was the, from what I remember, it was the. First flight that I'd done over there for that uh, period on a a Monday sort of lunchtime-ish when the the ejection happened.
0: Wow, okay. (laughs) First flight there, wow. Uh, Yeah. So so, um, just to set the scene for the listeners who uh, don't know your story, you were flying Skyhawks, uh, obviously, and you were in um, a TA4K Skyhawk. Um, Can you give me a little bit of uh, just your memories of the Skyhawk as an aircraft to start off with?
1: Uh, it, was a, it was a good old girl. I really enjoyed flying them. It was obviously a 1960s designed carrier aircraft. Um, we'd gone through the Kahoo upgrade, so it had a reasonably significant level of uh, avionics update. But the underlying uh, airframe was 60s with uh, very limited, uh, you know, Flight control augmentation. It just had a, a yaw damper system. Obviously, no fly-by-wire uh, hydraulic controls uh, to and, and and no pilot assistance to what you'd probably expect from a, a more modern aircraft. And for that reason, you could definitely uh, get it into uh, places on the manoeuvre envelope that you. You know, you made it very hard to extricate yourself from. Yeah. Uh, part yeah. of the design from Ed Heineman was to make it very uh, light and simple. And uh, one of those things that he put on it to give it the carrier approach speeds was uh, leading edge slats. But to achieve that, uh, they were aerodynamically driven and independent, in that there was no Uh, physical control over them other than the rigging that was done uh, by the unit maintenance test pilot and the ground crew obviously as the aircraft came out of its servicing. Uh, Those slats being independent means that if you were slightly out of balance or there was uh, a little bit of damage as you pull G one slat could come out before the other and On the balance of evidence, it seems that that was the underlying cause of my departure, which that led to uh, the ejection.
0: Right. Okay. Okay. So um, the aircraft that you were flying was uh, NZ 6256, which was quite a famous, uh, probably the best known of the Skyhawks because it had been uh, the one that represented the 50th anniversary with its gold color scheme.
1: Yeah. Obviously, by the time that uh, I got my hands on it, it, uh, it had reverted back to its uh, green yeah. uh, drab camo. But yeah, we would. Uh, the T birds were fully combat capable in that the avionics and uh, the, the Nav Attack system and the radar for the front cockpit was uh, fully combat capable. There was some uh, display repeaters in the rear seat, and the only, well, the Major difference really was that it had a 1,000 pounds less fuel because of the rear seat taking up a portion of where the normal fuselage fuel tank would sit in the single seaters. The two-seater, though, did have a longer nose because of that extra seat, um, and it did lead to some slightly undesirable handling characteristics, just that like a a dart having a little bit more forward of its uh, center of gravity, it made the nose uh, less stable in the longitudinal direction. Okay. which didn't okay. help me, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, can you tell us what, what were you doing that day and yeah, sort of take us through the story?
1: Sure. Um. Yeah, so we had, I think, two squadron probably had deployed with its normal six aircraft over to Perth. We'd been tasked to go out and uh, work up a ship's air intercept controller. And so part of that, they had... Uh, my, I was leading the air defense pair, so we were talking to the radar controller on board the ship. He would uh, vector us around the sky to intercept strikers that were coming in to uh, strike the boat. Uh, the strikers for that day were three other Skyhawks and two Pali aircraft, which were the civil contractors based out of Nara. Uh, I think were well, West Winds on the day, it doesn't really matter. A couple of um, business jets. So we had uh, done our normal brief uh, for that. There'd be some coordination between the strikers and the attackers. uh, Sorry, the strikers and the defenders, us being the defenders. And then we went our separate ways to uh, meet out out over the boat um, on the day. And so that was it. First uh, first merge for the day in our aircraft. So we'd gone out uh, reasonably heavily loaded with fuel to give a maximum amount of time on station uh, the strikers had run in at a, a medium altitude in this case more about presenting a uh, sort of radar picture to the ship our normal modus operandi if uh, we were striking would have been to come in low level but on this day they'd come up you know in the sort of 20 to 30,000 foot bracket so that we could uh, see each other achieve the radar intercept which was really what the training mission was for yeah. at which point they would you know, you'd either get shot or not, and, uh, con- and in any case, they were the strikers would uh, continue on through to the boat to give an anti ship missile presentation uh, for the the gun and missile crews on board the boat.
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: So yeah, and in this case, as I say we were the we were the defenders, so we would get vectored out around thirty or forty miles around from the the ship and do our best to uh, intercept and shoot the, the attackers with our AIM-9 missiles.
0: So you were well out to sea as well? You, you were well away from Yeah,
1: around, around 90 miles or so off the coast. Uh-huh. Uh, the, yeah, reasonable distance. I mean, the ships are out there. They also, there was a, there were two ships. I'm trying to remember. I think it was one, both Aussie Navy, but there was also a French uh, submarine in the area. I think I've got okay. that around the right okay. way. So, again, this multifaceted sort of workup for the Navy boats, they were having to deal with a, an air war, uh, you know, an air-to-surface war, as well as a subsurface war right. uh, picture. Um, yeah.
0: Okay. And so, um, you're tasked to uh, defend the ships. What what actually happened?
1: Uh, so, yeah. So, yeah, first merge, we get uh, vectored off. Um, we me leading the the pair, uh, my wingman at the time, was uh, squadron leader Greg Tyrrell, who was the normally the XO over, or sorry, the operations flight commander at 75 squadron, but he had uh, come over as well. And uh, we get victored on to initially uh, the two Air aircraft. And they we sh- I remember I shoot, I think I shoot one of them, but at which point the three other Skyhawks um uh, in on the picture, and very quickly we are involved in a, a big fight with uh, all three Skyhawk uh, attackers, who yep. always want to come yep. in for a bit of a scrap anyway, and us two. Uh, I shoot one of the other A4s, uh, and then shortly after, in the engaged maneuvering, I see over my shoulder, one of the other Skyhawks has committed down on me from on high, uh, and he's closing in, trying to, to get a shot on me. Because of that, I have already got my nose down but i want to create an overshoot problem for him so i'm pulling a lot of g on the aircraft in a brake turn to uh, create an angles and overshoot problem which i do so yeah. that skyhawk yeah. then blows through on my right hand side relatively close and i then do a loaded reversal which means keeping the g on to bring the nose of the jet uh, back around hard right, trying to get my nose on to affect a a shot on him as he's blowing past my aircraft. During that reversal turn, uh, because it was loaded and probably slightly out of balance, uh, one slat stayed in and the other one came out, which led to a flick roll in the the Skyhawk. And this was a reasonably well-known phenomenon in the A4. It was just something you got used to over a few years of flying the Skyhawk that You'd be going one direction, you would pull and uh, and try and go one way, and one slat would come in or out. So one slat would come out slightly before the other and would flip-roll the jet completely the wrong direction. Normally, you would sort of just pull through it. And uh, with a slight increase in angle of attack at that point, both slats would be out and you'd be back into sort of balanced flight and you would get your nose back over to wherever you wanted to go and, and keep on going. Unfortunately, in my case, the as I increased with the G and I think probably put in a bit more aileron on rudder to get the nose back over to where I wanted it to go, that further exacerbated the departure at that point and uh, led the aircraft into initial post stall dry rations and then with the incipient phase and then locked the aircraft into a, a flat spin. So, right. yeah.
0: Wow. Okay. And the flat spin's not good.
1: Not in a little A4. So the Skyhawk with its little delta wing has quite a high wing loading, as in a lot of weight of aircraft going through a reasonably small wing, which is great for a you know a low-level uh, attacker. Um, not quite so good for sustained turn rate like a fighter, but it also means that once it stops flying, it, it really stops flying. So... It didn't take long for the aircraft to uh, to wind up into the flat spin. At which point, it's basically falling out of the sky at sort of you know twenty five thousand feet per minute, yeah. and it uh, takes a lot of airspace under the aircraft to uh, recover the recover from that spin as well. The Skyhawk's a little bit different compared to say a normal uh, you know civil training aircraft or even the Air Mackey in this case. In that in those aircraft. Use of opposite rudder as the primary uh, spin recovery because you're trying to stop that yawing moment like a sycamore leaf. You want to oppose it to uh, stop you know stop that direction of spin and then yeah. and then fly out the Skyhawk um, because of its very powerful ailerons, which is half span. The actual primary spin recovery is to roll. In the case of an upright spin, is to actually roll the aircraft into the spin direction. Uh, and that will break the the spin because of the adverse yaw, and as well as the rudder and fly it out. But it takes over ten thousand feet of altitude, and I went into the spin somewhere, or well, the initial departure at least, at somewhere around about five thousand feet. And uh, obviously, at this point, the aircraft's falling pretty quickly.
0: Right. So, so you know immediately you're in big trouble, and. The, yeah, no, actually, the, not I think
1: the 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 aircraft that um, I I overshot and was trying to get my nose back onto uh, was a good friend of mine called Simon Ray Kermit, and he said afterwards it just looked like the jet stopped and was flying backwards. So in that, as I've reversed the aircraft or, or tried to reverse, and it's done the the initial departure, the the aircraft's almost sort of swapped ends um, and stopped flying pretty pretty quickly. So yeah
0: wow. So, in your mind, you're now just making the decision that you've got to get out of it at that stage. yeah,
1: so we have have the initial drills, the initial departure drills, which again, basically, everyone, you would find those edges on the flight envelope normally during air combat. and the departure um so rather than the initial full spin portion but the the first part doing the departure drills, everyone will have done once or twice in a skyhawk, but as you would, you know, push the aircraft around a bit, particularly during air combat. So you go through those, which are basically to centralise everything up, get the power off, make sure the flaps are up, the you know the speed brakes in, and then normally in by doing that, you would take away any of the sort of the pro spin uh, controls, and the aircraft would right itself, and you'd fly out. But in my case, in doing that, uh, it didn't happen. The aircraft uh, continued into the spin phase. So then, as I said, I was talking about before, then you have make a decision about what you need to do in terms of upright or inverted spin. And then you start putting in the uh, the spin recovery controls. Um, but where that leads to as part of the, the departure drills, which are the first ones, one of the last lines of that little, those memory items that we would run through was that if the aircraft was out of control below 10,000 feet, then eject. So right. the... Common understanding or application of that really was: if you're out of control and not recovering below ten thousand, you would eject because quite often we we would be departing the aircraft below ten thousand anyway, and the, but the aircraft would fly out. So I got into a, a bit of the spin recovery. I didn't do the aileron portion. I was uh, pretty much eyes wide open at that point um, and wondering what the hell was going on. Aircraft making in terms of wind noise, there's a whole bunch of different wind sounds as the aircraft's now sort of slicing sideways and around through the sky and then the other guys have, in the formation, have seen that uh, my aircraft's out of control. Ted Terrell, and I've uh, transmitted on the radio that to knock the fight off that I've departed and out of control and Ted uh, or Greg Terrell at my OFC, that he's also come on the radio and started to run through the departure drills and has uh, repeated the out-of-control below 10,000 feet eject uh, information point. And I've sort of reached the same decision in my mind that this aircraft's definitely not flying, it's not recovering, and the, uh, the sea's starting to look pretty big underneath me and I've lost a lot of altitude, so now's the time to uh, step out over the side. Right.
0: So uh, can you take us through that actual process of ejecting?
1: Sure. Um, yeah, so the it's the first part of it is to uh, assume a good body posture. So uh, pushing your, your back and your bum into the back of the seat, making sure your legs are forward and resting on the uh, rudder pedals. And that's to make sure that your thighs are, are pushed down against the seat so that you don't give any room for the ejection seat to accelerate up under your legs and break your legs as the seat comes out. Um, and to push your head back uh, onto the headrest, again, trying to make your spine nice and straight as you're uh, going to shortly obviously get the big kick in the pants from the rocket pack. Um, yeah, and then reaching down without looking, grabbing the handle with your master hand being your right hand and then your left hand on the wrist and pulling the the ejection handle straight up. In the two-seater, in the TA4, the ejection seat design is a little bit different to um, other ejection aircraft in that the TA-4, the rear seat, will always fire, even depending on what the position of the command ejection selector is at. So say, for instance, the Mackie or the Hawk, uh, which I flew later on with the Aussie Air Force, with the command ejection system, if you'd set it to solo flight, which I was on that day in the, in the TA-4, um, in other aircraft, by selecting it to forwards to front only, only the front seat would go out. Whereas in the T-Bird, even if there was no one in the back seat, the system was set up to fire the rear seat uh, and then the front seat. So it actually means that there is a a measurable delay by the time that you pull the handle, which initially fires off the canopy. It's got a little system of uh, interconnect. So the canopy has to clear away from the aircraft, which allows the handle to be pulled a bit further to, to then start the actual rocket pack initiation on the seat, which then fires the rear seat, which then allows the front seat to fire. So you get a fair amount of temporal distortion, obviously, in a high stress situation. But I do remember there at the time noticing the varying stages through the ejection sequence as the the interconnects are unlocked to allow the the front seat with me in it to to come out of the aircraft. do you remember a big kick in the pants as obviously the seat then fires. I remember shortly after a big bang near my ear, I'm not sure if that was the uh, man seat separation rocket, which in the uh, Escobac 1G3 uh, pushes the seat away from the uh, aircrew member, or it might have been the ballistic spreader, which is attached to the parachute, um, which gave the seat, zero zero capability and that's a system of explosives and weights around the bottom of the parachute which uh, spreads the parachute in a hurry um, and and gives it the increased capability more designed for uh, going off the end of a a carrier on a a soft cat shot and you know giving that ability to get under a chute with uh, zero altitude not quite so good for higher speed ejections which uh previous a4 ejections had found out um but in my case because i had basically no forward speed was just falling i had a, a reasonably well, i had a quite a soft uh subsequent ejection uh experience with the the opening of the chute Right,
0: all right. so your your chute opens your seat's gone and you're suddenly hanging there i guess
1: yeah and it's deathly quiet (laughs) so (laughs) you go from you know a lot going on a lot trying to get an aircraft back flying realizing it's not going well radios are going the jets making all sorts of wind noises as the you know and then there's bangs and crashes and then all of a sudden big kick in the pants and you're just hanging there and it's quiet and there's just a little bit of wind noise and yeah amazing like the the contrast between the two. And then, yeah, so I'm hanging there in the chute, look down and uh, see the aircraft hit the water underneath me. Um, It goes through like another sort of quarter to half a turn um, as it then pancaked into the water. And then from there, there's a bunch of uh, post-ejection drills that you need to do to get out the various survival aids and, and prepare for the landing being it on in this case on water or onto the land
0: so can you run through those those drills that you had to go through
1: yeah it's sort of a, a top top to bottom start by oh get this around the right way uh you look up so basically the first one is to look up look up into the parachute make sure you've actually got a chute um, if there wasn't a parachute streaming you'd need to um, pull the rip cord uh, which on the a4 was a a D handle up and on the left hand side of the the harness. Um, From there, you would come down and uh, make a decision about whether or not you need to uh, do, I think it was called a six line cut. There was a system where you would pull some handles on the risers and that would um, pop away some of the parachute risers and would allow the chute to be steered. But in this case, I didn't need to because I was just going into the water come down, uh, raise your visor or make a decision on your visor. Going into water, you want it up and out of the way. Uh, Going into trees, for instance, on land, you would want to keep everything on your face um, to create as much head protection as possible. Then you make a decision about your oxygen mask, really the same uh, thought process about whether or not you need face protection. In my case, I uh, unhooked both sides and threw it away. And then it's down to inflate your um life preserver and then coming down further is to then make a decision on whether or not you're going to deploy the life raft which in my case i obviously was so that's a uh a two uh sort of rubber handles down on the side i think it's on the memory i think back on the the right hand side you pull that at which point the the bottom of the seat pan falls away the life raft and the attached uh, survival pack fall out and inflates um, as it reaches the end of its, its tethering line. Then you come back up again and you make a decision about uh, how you're going to orientate yourself for the the landing into the water. In my case, there was, there was a gale warning in effect for the the Perth area. So it was like a four to six meter swell and sort of 20 to 30 knots of wind and quite a, You know, a bunch of white caps. So, and I didn't have enough time to be able to turn around and face the you know the shoot into the wind. It wasn't long after that I did those um, parachute descent drills that I was about to hit the water. And I was go- I went into the water downwind. And I do remember at the time thinking I was you know how glad I was that I was going into the water because I already had a bit of ground speed. Be- nothing worse than some of the cases you hear about overseas where, you know, guys get out of the aircraft parachute down and then are drag through fences and trees at, you know, 30, 40 Ks an hour. Cause it, you can't, uh, you can't control it once you hit the ground. Yeah. Yeah. And then it was you know, into the water um, drag over the life raft, jump into the little life raft, which had inflated uh, and then subsequent set of drills from there in terms of uh, making uh, the communication contact with the other aircraft that are over the top. So to do that, got the uh, search and rescue beacon and radio, which is in the, on your life preserver, and then bailing the, the raft out and inflating the floor and the roof to try and you know create a bit of uh, shelter from the wind and the waves, and hopefully wait for the subsequent pickup. Right,
0: right. So that, that point where you entered the water, um, you would release the the, um, uh, the parachute by uh, undoing the Capewell fittings, wouldn't you?
1: Uh, yeah, and they were called Koch fittings, so okay. K-O-C-H, yeah, which was a US Navy sort of system, um, again, different to the Martin Baker system, where the, on the Martin Baker ejection seat, that's uh, all one Sort of harness that would go all the way around, whereas we had the U.S. Navy system where we would don the harness separately um, prior to getting into the aircraft, and then attach ourselves uh, to the parachute using these cotch fittings, which are metal buckles sort of up around your um, collarbone, yep. um, which was also the yeah the system for releasing the parachute. The yeah that that system I believe evolved a little bit. What we didn't have was the ability to. Uh, if you're unconscious, um, other seats and Air Force uh, ejection seats nowadays will have like little water sensors, so that if you're unconscious and you hit the hit the water, they will activate and automatically release the the chute for you. Okay. Yep. Yep. Yeah. That makes sense.
0: Right. And so the the um, the raft. Uh, once you got in, that was that um, full of water by that stage.
1: Yeah, it was a little bit. Um, it would, was up the right way, which was a good thing. You obviously, it's so the little one-man life raft. It's about as long as you are. If you're sitting on your bottom on the ground and put your legs straight out in front of you, that's about as long as it is.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, it has an orange canopy that you uh, pull up around your shoulders and then inflate. Um in the floor of the raft it's got an integral baler which is just a sort of a, a sock system that you would scoop up the water but in we had always been taught and i did as well was to remove your helmet um, and once you get into the raft and then use that as a baler initially because the little inbuilt baler would take too long yeah. uh, to get all the water out but you'd obviously drag a lot of water in with you as you um climb clambered into the raft and that's probably where most of it came from yep. the problem was on that day was because of the the uh the wind and the, the waves was that the there's a little um sea anchor that's attached to the back of the raft that was one of the first things you'd do is you'd climb in you would unpack the little sea anchor and throw it out the back but it was pretty much ineffective and what had actually happened was that the raft drifted over the top of my parachute Um, which was nearby, but the parachute then wrapped itself around the survival box and that acted as a large sort of sea anchor and kept the raft side on initially. So I was side onto these white caps and waves breaking off the top of the big swell. So I'd get in, bail, and then a wave would come along and sort of break off the top and splosh over the top of the raft and split the the Velcro on the, the, the roof. And the raft would fill back up with water, so I'd be back to square one again, back to bailing. Right, right, right <laughs> And I figured right. it out after a, a little while that I managed to um, free the the parachute from around the the box. Yeah. Um. And I'd already got the thing, the you know, the survival aids out of the 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 box at that point. But then you know, I ended up with the bringing the survival box in and putting it on my knee, just to um, try and help ride out the the waves a bit better. Right. But yeah, I was glad I wasn't in there for much longer because it was wasn't very comfortable.
0: What was the temperature like? Was it cold or?
1: It wasn't too bad. So it was March in you know sort of uh, March in Perth. So it yeah. was uh, autumnal. But in any case, um, I did get the shivers and was mildly sort of hypothermic by the time I got taken into the hospital. Sort of combination, I guess, of of shock. Yeah. But yeah. Again. You know, are only dressed in a, a flight suit with, you know, cotton underwear. There's not much thermal protection from that. <laughs>
0: no, no, not at all. So how long were you drifting in the raft before you got picked up? Obviously, the uh, other aircraft are above you and are arranging for someone to come pick you up.
1: Yeah, yeah. So uh, I was out there for around about 90 minutes. Um, and, yeah, they managed to... Actually, it wasn't a Monday, it was a Friday, because this led to the other funny part of the, was well, slightly funny part, I guess, of the story, was that the Australian Navy was supposed to be holding the search and rescue cover, but it being a Friday afternoon, the onboard helicopter, I think ostensibly due to the weather conditions, had already left the ship and had flown back to the, the naval uh, base down at uh, the fleet base west. Yep. So when the May Day went out and the um, other aircraft called back to the RAF base at Pierce, um, the, re- the Air Force rescue chopper hadn't known that they were covering the search and rescue for us because they really weren't supposed to. Were was supposed to be, the, in that case, the Navy's responsibility. So yeah. it took a little while for the the uh, the rescue chopper to be refueled enough to be able to come out the 90-odd miles off the coast to come and get me, so right. it led to a bit of an extra delay. And it was it was a Friday afternoon because it took them a little while to uh, locate the duty refueling driver and stuff. So it was a few you know, usual learning points from it. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the the rescue chopper in that case is actually a civil contracted uh, helicopter, an S seventy six that they, but they certainly had the expertise and the knowledge that is their job to cover the, you know, the flying area around the the Air Force Base over in Pierce.
0: Right, right, right. So had you actually sustained any injury at all
1: in the ejection? No, I was remarkably lucky. I was definitely a little bit shorter uh, by, you know, a, a couple of centimetres. Um, oh. But no, nothing. I got some minor scraping down my left-hand side um, as The aircraft was spinning to the right, and I was pushed up against the left hand side of the cockpit um, as I went out. So I got a bit of a gouge down my arm from what looked, I think they said it was a part of the canopy locking rail. And my left boot actually kicked a bunch of stuff, and they could see a bunch of scoring marks all the way down to the steel cap uh, on my left boot. But that did its job, protected my toes as I, I went out. So, no, I've I had a sore neck, obviously afterwards. It was as the seat went up, in spite of me pushing trying to get my head back against the backrest. I do remember my chin coming down and touching my chest um, during the initial rocket stroke. but now I've been very lucky
0: so you said that you um, were compressed a couple of centimeters did, did that um did that stay like that, or did you eventually? No.
1: You know, came back out again. Came back out. Yeah, so, yeah. I think it's literally it's just that you know the um, G force and the Z axis, straight up and down. It just compresses your vertebrae, and then yeah. they they uncompress over the next few days. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. 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 Uh, okay. So
0: once you got back to uh, you, obviously went to the hospital to be checked out. Um, how long were you there for? Um.
1: The yeah. So the Chopper um, winched me up. Uh, That was a bit of a a, a frightening affair, actually, because the the chopper guys, their training is to treat all ejections as potential back injuries. So they want to get you into a a stretcher board. And in this case, it was a sort of a stretcher raft. bit different to say, I think, back in the day, if the New Zealand Air Force was going to pick you up, they would have just chucked you into the old horse collar you know, the horse strap thing under the arms and dragged you up. Yeah. But in this case, they, um, they swam. the swimmer came down with the raft and brought it over and said, you know, get, you need to get in. You, you're sort of all done with hand signals at that point because there's a helicopter hovering over the top. Um, but the problem was this raft thing sat really low in the water. And again, we're still in these breaking waves and big swell. So I got the first few straps on sort of around my lower leg and legs and lower torso But I was having to keep my hands out because the waves were threatening to um, tip the raft upside down that that I was getting strapped into. And that would have been probably the worst way to go, right? You've survived the ejection and then end up drowning upside down. Yeah. (laughs) Backboard. So, yeah, I got them to not strap in my upper half and not strap in my arms um, and then got hauled up into the helicopter that way. Yeah, helicopter then took me off to the Perth General Hospital in town yep uh, they did a got warmed up a bit with some you know high hyper, hypothermia blankets, uh, had a bunch of checks, uh you know back and chest X-rays, uh, general medical. It was only in there for probably two or three hours. Um, the RAF rescue chopper waited on the helipad and then once that was done, we got flown back to the RAF base at Pierce. Where I got transferred into the base hospital um, and then was kept in isolation for the next couple of days while the um, board of inquiry team was uh, assembled back at Ahakia and then flown over to Perth. And that was just to keep me away from sort of contaminating my story or any evidence and that sort of thing. So, but it was a bit of a, wasn't the best thing to be doing, which was sitting in isolation in a hospital room for the next two days, you know, churning things over in my head about what the hell just happened.
0: Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, once you uh, were, were released um, back to the squadron, I guess, was it?
1: Uh, stayed around in Perth for the next few days. So there was obviously uh, initial and then subsequent interviews with the board of inquiry. Oh, yeah. Um, when in. Sponsored and helped the armourers and the uh, safety and surface workers consume a a gin bucket by way of thanks. (laughs) And then, uh, yeah, then jumped on the plane and uh, headed back home to New Zealand. Had a a week off or so, so uh, catching up with family and my girlfriend, uh, now wife. And then after a week was back at work at a here at 75 Squadron.
0: Okay. So was it uh, was it easy or difficult to get back into the aircraft after that?
1: It was actually surprisingly good. I think this is where the, the Kiwi Air Force, and again, by this stage, uh, Greg Turrell was back in New Zealand at this stage and yep. had a quick sort of 10-minute chat prior to you know him authorizing me for sortie. And they the auth was to go and take a single seat Skyhawk back up again and go and pull the wings off it. Go slow. Go fast. Do all sorts of stuff. Just get the you know confidence back in the handling of the aircraft and get back into it. So, right. yeah, not too much time to you know think about it. And uh, yeah, just get on and get back in doing the job.
0: Right, right. Now, am I right in thinking yours was the last ejection that the Air Force had?
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's pretty good, isn't it? 20, 20 years. I guess yeah. this was an ensuing period where the RNZF wasn't flying any ejection seat equipped aircraft, but yeah, they've, but yeah. As I guess what I was saying before at the start of the, this interview is that the, the Skyhawk was that last of that sort of uh, generation of aircraft of sort of areas in the, in the the handling of the aircraft where the aircraft could come along and bite you and bite you hard yeah. if you, you mishandled it. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. Now, unfortunately, infamous for <laughs> being <laughs> the last one to <laughs> jump over the side. Well, I mean, you know, at least everything worked and you're still here. Yeah, everything. that's it's right. Main thing. And that is, I mean, that is obviously where the the kudos comes back to is the, you know, the ground crews and all the, various facets of the Air Force uh, maintenance side of things that were you know working with some reasonably old equipment at that stage but making sure that it, it worked first time every time they did you know a great bunch of guys and doing really really good work Yeah, absolutely
0: I mean and geez a lot of those aircraft are still flying now in the States aren't they those same Skyhawks. So.
1: yeah I think yeah. Um, Drake and they had a, an ejection from a T bird in the downwind of the circuit. So they're still, still working. Yeah. Yep. Yep.
0: Yeah. Um, uh, obviously you were right near the end of, uh, the Skyhawks time in the air force. It was only a few months later that they were retired and the strike wing retired. Um, what happened after that to you? What was your subsequent career?
1: Uh, I went off to the Australian Air Force, um, went and did a flying instructor's course and then instructed on the PC-9 initially over in Perth and then back onto the uh, BAE Hawk over at Williamtown where I rejoined uh, Nick Osborne who was uh, my boss at 75 Squadron and then uh, Eastie who's obviously pretty well known. He was uh, there on the Hawk as well. So we had a Plus, there were three or four other um, RAF uh, guys that had joined the Australian Air Force and a couple of uh, Aussies who were trying to keep it real for all us international imports. But yeah, instructing on the Hawk and doing their fighter lead-in training. Uh, I did that uh, with the Aussie Air Force for just over three and a half years. Went, ended up down at uh, Pal Air again, doing the Learjet uh, or Westwind uh, business jet. Stuff back for Australian Defence Force and then moved across into uh, airline flying. Okay,
0: All right. Yeah, yeah well, um, really interesting stuff, Phil, and uh, it's um, it's great to hear your story and and uh, you know it's it's interesting that the the interviews I've done uh, I've got the the oldest and he was the second but he's the oldest living um, ejectee I guess you'd call them um, mm. from from the RNZF, and you're the most recent. So, yeah. Uh, and let's let's hope that we won't end up with uh, any more that uh, the, the uh, T6 has ejection seats, but so far they've not had to use them. So, um, yeah, but,
1: fingers crossed. Yeah. It's a it's a great capability to have in you know in those sorts of aircraft. Obviously, knowing that there is a a, a system that is able to be used to. Save you, save you when everything else has gone horribly wrong. Yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: one thing that I've asked the others that I've interviewed is, uh, did you think that your training that you'd done on what would happen when you ejected was that adequate for what actually really happened? What, did it did it feel the same? Did everything work as you expected? Yeah,
1: yeah very much so. The uh, uh, because you know it had been sort of instilled from uh, very early on going through pilot's course on the Mackie and then uh, the Mackie and then obviously through and onto the Skyhawk, the, the wet drills that the um, safety and surface guys used to run over the Ahakia pool. Um, it all came back and it was sort of second nature. It wasn't second nature when I was just trying to describe before, because it's been a few years, but at the time you would, you know, regularly practiced and assessed on it. And just that, what, right, what's next, right. Top to bottom drills while you're in the scent, right. As you hit the water, what's next, dong, dung dong. And the, yeah, all that the usual adage of, you know, practice makes perfect, and that's what had happened, and, yeah, all went very well. Excellent, excellent. Now,
0: uh, I know that uh, pilots who ejected from Martin Baker's seats um, or using a Martin Baker seat, they end up in a club. Uh, Is there a club for the um, ESCAPAC as well?
1: No, there's not. No, there's nothing, and the Martin Baker boys sort of got – Um, Obviously, the in from Martin Baker, they'd also get the little, um, was it the silkworm, I think, from the manufacturer of the parachutes. Uh, Yeah, not for the Escapac 1G3 with its US Navy contract parachute. So nothing at all. I did uh, was invited to join the Caterpillar Club, Um, was the remnants of the Caterpillar Club up in Auckland, which I think is now... Gone by the by, as its members uh, sort of got older and older, but no, there was no no recognition from from anyone. <laughs> <laughs>
0: okay. <laughs> well, at least we remember it. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, thanks very much, Phil. It's been fascinating to hear your story, and uh, I really
1: appreciate it. Yeah, no problem, David. Look forward to uh, listening to the episode.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's some interesting stuff.
1: Yeah. That was
0: the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.